So what do you do when you're 40 years old and you've just learned to drive, but you're afraid to get on the Mass Pike or 95? You go by the entrances and the exits and you're afraid of the highway. What do you do when you're 40 and you're afraid of that highway? Tova Mirvis, who is a writer who wrote a fantastic book, which is called The Book of Separation, which is her memoir about leaving an Orthodox Jewish world and marriage, decided that that was her moment where she had to learn to take that highway by herself and leave behind this very tight-knit community and group of people who had supported her her whole life. She grew up in that kind of uh, in community, a small Jewish community, she said. And she married after dating 12 weeks. She was 22 years old. And she had gone into therapy in order to keep her marriage together because she thought that was the way to keep the marriage together. She was not feeling like she could be herself. In her head, she said that she had to let go of the phrase in her head that nothing can change. And what she learned in therapy is that things change all the time. And she felt like when she was 40, she said 40 was a pivotal moment where she thought she would feel like an adult, but instead she felt like a child because she was not allowed to make her own decisions. And she never felt like she was her authentic self, she says, even and especially with when it came to women's issues. And she felt like she could not be herself in any way, shape, or form. She wrote a piece for the New York Times, which was about the ancient rabbinic ceremony of uh, divorce. And she said that the emails that came pouring in from others who had left rigid, religious, um, strong religious backgrounds from Mennonites and Catholics made her realize that she was not alone. And what she says is that she was spending so much time upholding the facade for other people that she realized that many, many people out there are doing the same thing and they are very unhappy doing it. And she decided 40 was the moment when she had to change that. So we have a very different discussion about reinventing when you are leaving your whole world behind, and especially a world that was steeped in religious tradition and community. And she is extremely happily married now, and her kids are happy with her, and she's written books. She was always a book writer, but she was a fiction writer. This was her, her memoir that she wrote. And I'm just so thrilled to have a moment to bring Tova Mirvis to you and have her talk about how you reinvent out of a world that you thought was forever. So welcome, Tova. I'm so glad to have you here on this podcast. This is a totally different kind of reinvention. Oh my God, talk about a life reinvention. Right, it was a full on, every part of life <laughs> got, got remade. Oh my God, just reading the first few pages of the book, you're just gripped and completely 
freaked out. Her book is called The Book of Separation, a memoir by Tova Mirvis. And I mean, let's just start by talking about that. When you wrote the book, was it 2017 or 18 there? It's not completely clear to me. It came out in 2017. And then it came out in paperback this past year. Oh, I see. Right. That's what it would be. So talk a little bit about the book and what made you write it and your journey to get there to becoming a writer. Sure. I've always been a fiction writer and loved the idea of imagining other people's lives. It was sort of nice to stay out of kind of the muck of my own life. But uh-huh. I, I, went, I ended up getting divorced and leaving the Orthodox Jewish world that I was raised in. And I knew I had to write about it. It felt very nerve wracking to write about such a personal, mm. painful story. But I wrote a piece of the story as an essay in the New York Times about leaving um, my Orthodox Jewish world. And I was flooded with emails from people who had made similar decisions to leave something that had defined them. And it made me realize that when you tell a personal story, it is very scary and you feel immensely vulnerable. Mm -hmm. But I think it's what enables other people to really reach out and connect and find those commonalities, even when the particulars of a story are so different. Where did people, um, what kind of analogous situations did people reach out to you from? Were they other religious um, areas or were they other kinds of things? It was really fascinating. I mean, the piece was about an Orthodox Jewish divorce ceremony, this sort of rabbinic ancient ceremony in which you're officially divorced. And so it's Mm -hmm. such a particular world. Mm -hmm. Within hours of the piece going live on the New York Times website, I just had this avalanche of emails, and some were from people who had left religious backgrounds, from someone who had been formerly Mennonite, from people who had been Mormon, from people who had been Catholic. I got lots of emails from people who were getting divorced, who were contemplating Mm -hmm. divorce. Mm -hmm. But really, I felt like all the emails shared in common the, the idea of what happens when you reach that moment in your life when you realize that you need to do something different than what you've always done, that, that change moment when, you know, in the moment it feels like jumping off a skyscraper, mm-hmm. but that sense that you have to do something different. Mm. And how long have you struggled with that feeling? Oh, for so long. I mean, I, I grew up as part of an, a small, close-knit Orthodox Jewish community. Everyone in my family was part of this world. Oh, And okay. I, got, I got married when I was um, 22 after dating my first boyfriend for 12 weeks. You know, that was sort of, oh, my God. Okay. I, know, I mean, in my world, that was normal. It oh, felt, I felt like, okay. you know, I was a good girl. I had done what I was supposed to do. You know, what could go wrong? Wow. And 12 weeks. Okay. 12 weeks. It just seemed like, you know, this is how it was supposed to look. And, oh, wow. and so I think that really from the very start, I had this whisper of doubt, this mm-hmm. question of, did I really believe in the world I was part of? And mm. did I really did I really believe the things that I was living? Was this really who I was? Or did I have to sort of shave off all the more complicated parts of myself Mm. in order to remain inside that marriage and that religious world? Mm. And how did you, I mean, that must have been just horrific to have to even, you must have felt just so isolated and alone. I can't even imagine. 
I think any change is, is so scary. It's so isolating that sense. You know, it's so easy to trick ourselves into thinking that everyone else is fine. Everyone else is happy. Yes. Everyone else yes. believes 100%. And, you know, it's only me, of course. Only yes. me, yes. you know, wrestles. Yeah. And, I, you know, one of the things I found in writing about these questions is how it is never only you. So many people mm. have that same struggle, that same urge to be authentic, but that feeling that the life they are inside of doesn't allow that. And mm. so, you know, it was lonely going through it, but mm-hmm. I do feel like I've emerged with this sense of, I don't believe the facades anymore. I don't believe mm. those, outer, those outer versions. Mm. Interesting. So can you look at people in different ways now? I do. I mean, I think that the story is always more complicated. I mean, it's one of the things I love about being a novelist and a fiction mm-hmm. writer is mm-hmm. that you get to imagine all of those internal scenarios. And, you know, I think that we so often try to uphold those facades for each other. It's almost like a battle we do with one another to sort of mm-hmm. pretend that everything in my life is perfect. Mm-hmm. But I think that when you take apart your life, when you, and it's public, mm-hmm. people, I think, reach out to you. They begin to see you as someone with whom things can be shared. And so, you know, even after there were sort of ripples of news that, you know, among my kids' schools and my Jewish community that I was getting divorced, you know, people who I barely knew would come up to me and say, you know, could we meet for coffee one time? Or, uh, you know, this, this feeling that I think we're so hungry for people mm. we can actually have a real conversation with. Mm, so interesting. And what did it take specifically? How did you, oh, here's one of the things that I've been digging around for now is process. Um, a lot of people, we've done a lot of these um, interviews about different types of reinvention coming from all different directions. Certainly yours is a new direction. We have never done this. Um, but what my listeners are really interested in is what was the process to getting yourself out? Like, how did it begin? What did you do? Did you go to the library? Did you research things online? Did you go to groups? Did you go to therapy? Did you, you know, like people really want to know what the steps were. So I don't know if there are steps that you can give us um, that can be applied to different situations, but that people can extrapolate from. Sure. And I think the first step was an internal one. It was freeing myself or forcing myself to let go of this this phrase I had in my head for so long, nothing can change. I just heard wow. it over and over again, nothing can change. And I was so, so dug so deep into that idea. And I think the first change came in letting go of that idea and recognizing that, you know, things change all the time and people change and I was changing and mm-hmm. to somehow lessen my insistence on that idea. Was that something you came to by yourself, Tova? Was that something you worked with on somebody? Or was this literally just you sitting in a park and thinking about it? How did you get to that? I mean, some of it was therapy. Certainly, I had oh, a did. Th- I did okay. have a therapist throughout this process. And I would okay. sort of go back and forth. With, I would sort of insist on this idea of nothing can change. And, okay. you know, my therapist would ask okay. me. I remember a conversation I had with my sister, who I'm very close with, telling her that nothing can change. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, you know, sometimes when we can't make little changes, we end up making enormous changes. Mm. And I felt like that felt very true to me, that mm-hmm. the idea that I was so embedded in the idea that things couldn't change. Mm. I felt like... Like in making a change, I lost a sense of 
communal support and sort of this broad sense of approval, but I sought out a few people, you know, the one or two close friends who could understand, people who had gone through changes themselves, who Mm -hmm. understood what it was not to follow that path Mm -hmm. and really relied on them. I listened to other people's stories. I felt like any story, whether it was a stranger who might start telling me something, Mm -hmm. reading, anyone who could tell me a story about not following the path laid out for them, Mm. that was enormously, enormously helpful. Um, There was a poem I came back to. I, I, a point, one point could probably recite it by heart. It was called, it's called The Journey by Mary Oliver. Mm -hmm. And one of the opening lines are, one day you knew what you had to do and you began. And I would just say it to myself over and over again, that one day you knew. And I felt like this was the day I knew. Mm. And how old were you when you knew? What was that, what was that day like? And how did you, um, you've been doing therapy. What sent you into therapy? Was it that uncomfortableness? And did your family know you're in therapy? My family did know. I mean, I started going to therapy when I was probably in my early 20s, and it was mostly mm-hmm. to hold together the life I was trying to have. It was okay. to hold together a marriage that was very difficult for me to be inside of, a religious mm-hmm. world that didn't really match me, and that eventually morphed into a question about how to leave. Mm-hmm. But I think also, you know, I think the idea of turning 40 felt very mm-hmm. pivotal for me. Mm-hmm. I'd always envisioned 40 as this time when, you know, you're actually finally an adult and you can mm-hmm. do what you actually believe. Mm-hmm. And that date was approaching. I was getting closer and closer to being 40 and realizing that in many ways I felt like a child still. Mm-hmm. I felt like I wasn't allowed to make my own decisions. I wasn't allowed to upend something that didn't work for me. And really that approach of that birthday, a few months out from it was when everything came to a head. Just that sense that I couldn't imagine being a 40-year-old woman who could not do what she actually wanted to do. Mm. And that was because of all the constraints on, on you and your marriage or... It was both being in a marriage that I did not feel like I could be my full self. Mm. I felt like I had to pretend or keep a mask on in order for things to be okay. Mm -hmm. And it was also um, maybe even more so to be part of a religious community that asks a lot of you. Mm -hmm. It's not about just attending a holiday every now and then, Mm -hmm. but it really requires you to to believe in something and to do many, many actions, you know, mm. every single day mm-hmm. that uphold a system of belief. Mm-hmm. And as a mother, it would require me to teach my children mm. you know, that God wants you to do this or God mm-hmm. wants you to do that. Mm-hmm. Things I, d- I didn't think. Mm-hmm. And so it became very hard to always have this sense of being disingenuous or unable to be authentic. And mm. I think that feeling of inauthenticity mm is what really gave me this urge to to make a change and to say that I wasn't going to continue to observe a religious world and a set of religious rituals that I did not actually believe in. Mm-hmm. And did when did you realize that you didn't believe? Was that always the case or was that um, did you suddenly just realize that you didn't believe? It was never sudden. I was sort of, I find it, it's funny, any change I've made is always sort of very, very slow and then okay. all of a sudden. So okay. I spent many years where I would would observe and was outwardly, I was known as an Orthodox Jewish writer and my fiction was about the Orthodox Jewish world. Mm-hmm. And I liked parts about belonging. I liked the sense of family connection. There was something very comfortable about being part of a 
close-knit community, of matching my parents, of being like the people around me. Mm-hmm. But certainly I, when I let myself think about the actual beliefs themselves or when I let myself ask questions about, did I really think this was true? Mm-hmm. It became very hard to and it was particularly true about women's issues. Mm-hmm. Women have a very specific role to play within Orthodox Judaism, mm-hmm. and they don't share an equal role with men. Mm-hmm. And I would tell myself over and over again that this didn't bother me, that this was mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. I would try to say I'm a feminist and I'm Orthodox mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. hold together these competing ideas. And I think we can be things that conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. But for me, it felt like I was trying to force together two things that did not really mesh well or that for, for me did not represent who I actually, what I actually thought about things. So when you actually got up to the idea of, you know, this is not going to work out, was that a, a sudden revelation or your birthday is approaching and 40 is perfect for us because basically Covey Club is for women 40 plus because I do believe that 40 is kind of a reckoning moment where you say mm-hmm. I'm no longer a kid and I may have lived longer now than I'm going to live. And I have, you know, time's a-wasting. Right. How am I going to spend these next years, whatever I've got? And um, so how did you reconcile that? And what steps did you take? Again, if there's process there, I would love to know process. Right. A lot of the process for me was about fear. I think that okay. I was extremely afraid to do anything different. And I okay. think that one of the things that I learned was that you do things different even when you are afraid. And one of the things that I felt like I was wrestling with sort of as, this, as the marriage issue was going on and my religious change was sort of separate from them, but it felt like this perfect metaphor. And I had lived in New York City for a long time where I never needed to drive and then moved to the Boston suburbs and all of a sudden had to drive everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I could drive kind of my neighborhood in Boston, but mm-hmm. for 10 years, I managed to avoid driving on the highway. I mm-hmm. just couldn't do it. I would look at I-95 or the Mass Pike and think, I don't know how other people get on that highway, but mm. I cannot do it. And mm-hmm. I would have this almost panic feeling every time I saw like the, you know, the entrance ramps or exit ramps, this fear that I might accidentally find myself on the highway. And I always thought, oh, but when I'm 40, I will, of course, be able to drive on the highway. Like something magical I thought mm-hmm. might happen mm-hmm. and I would know how to drive on the highway. And then in the midst of a divorce, I, I realized that there was never going to be a moment I was not afraid to drive on the highway, mm. but I was going to drive even though I was afraid. Mm. And a recognition that it wasn't like something magical was going to change. It wasn't like the fear mm-hmm. would go away. But mm-hmm. I, I think I was more afraid to be a 40-year-old who could not drive somewhere she needed to go. And driving felt so metaphorical also. Mm-hmm. I felt like if you can't get on the highway, you can't go anywhere. You can't mm-hmm. be someone who gets where she needs to go. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh my God. And so That's I did incredible. it. I mean, terrified, shaking. Did you do it? Yeah. I did you? did it. So afraid. I mean, you know, con- still, th- you know, my hands completely shaking, my face bright red, prickling, that anxiety feeling. Yes. Yes. And just went anyway, because it, it was like, what other choice do I have? I have wow. to get on it. You're so brave. Oh my God. Now, every time I merge on, I think I must be the only person who thinks I am so cool. Look at me. <laughs> I'm on I'm in five. Oh, wow. And so that was, that was, that's a really incredible metaphor. That's amazing. And but, 
so what happened after that that so then so you did did you actually get on the highway before you divorced or was that after it was all in the midst it was in that uh-huh. long drawn out process of uh-huh. being in the midst of getting divorced uh-huh. um i was i was driving before i was officially divorced uh-huh. i it felt like that this change and you know there were the external changes there was the you know the separation in a marriage which was very painful of uh-huh. course and the religious changes where uh-huh. Um, Orthodox Judaism is so much about actions. And so, Uh you know, there's lots of restrictions on food and Uh absorbing the Sabbath and what you wear. And so Uh each new thing I did felt like this transgression, but it also felt like this world opening up a little bit more. Uh But I think the biggest change was inside. It was accepting the idea that you don't have to do what people expect of you or you don't have to do what you expect of yourself even, that you mm-hmm. you could take yourself by surprise. Mm. You really be someone who did not do what – you could not be that person you always imagined you would be. I'd always thought that I would, you know, get married young and follow in the footsteps of my parents and be part of this community and make things work even if I was unhappy and I would do what, what, I, was, what I was expected of me. And never that idea that I could do something different. I mean, that felt unfathomable to me. Mm, incredible. Um, so how did that proceed? Where are you now in all of this? And your book has come out. And what have you learned from that? What have... Right. I think writing about it for me was probably one of the most liberating parts because I think in any change like a divorce, there's certainly a feeling of shame and certainly Mm. there are people around you who Mm -hmm. are very happy to make you feel shame about Mm -hmm. it or to make you Mm -hmm. feel that you've betrayed something or that you are somehow um, suspect in some ways. Mm. And I think for me, writing about it in such a public forum was a way of saying that this is a story that happens in the world. It's certainly not only my story, that there are lots of stories about change and unhappiness and moving on and reshaping a life. And for me, that, you know, I always ask myself, you know, could I tell anyone this story? Did I have to keep it a secret how I felt? And the idea of writing about it says that this is a story you can tell, that we can all tell our stories, even if there are people who disagree with them or Mm -hmm. people who might view it differently, that Mm -hmm. we all are allowed to own and claim our own stories. Mm -hmm. And so I think writing about it for me has been enormously liberating and also that discovery of commonality with so many other people. Mm -hmm. I think one of my favorite parts about my book coming out was discovering that I think more than any other group, I think my book spoke to people who had left the Mormon world. I was wondering about that. It was, okay. yeah, it was soon after the book came out, I ended up doing this podcast called Mormon Stories, wow. which is for people who've left Mormonism mm. or who are struggling. Mm. And I started getting hundreds and hundreds of emails from mm. that community. And I ended up doing an event in Salt Lake City with people who had left that world. And I felt like, oh, these are my people. That, wow. that sense that certain when you leave certain religious worlds, you really leave your whole identity. It's so central to who you are. And mm. family and community and friends are all so tied up in it. And it really made me realize that sense of like deep-seated connection across these, these seeming large boundaries or across these religious worlds where I felt like you know, people would write to me and say, you are telling my story, or I feel the exact same way, even though they're writing to me from Salt Lake City about a Mm. Mormon world. And I think that's changed me more than anything. 
And how has that changed you? How are you, how are you adapting now to your new life? What's happening with your kids? What's happening with your love life? Well, I, I mean, I think the, one of the adaptations for me is letting go of this idea of certainty, letting go of this mm-hmm. idea of this is how it has to be or it has to look a certain way mm-hmm. and really making peace in so many ways with the messiness of it, that it is mm-hmm. far more complicated and far messier mm-hmm. than I ever imagined it might be. And yet mm-hmm. there's a certain freedom in that. I think that mm-hmm. it's made me more open as a person mm-hmm. to the fact that so many people have stories that don't match that fantasy version. Mm-hmm. I, I got remarried two years ago. Oh, and, okay. Um, yeah, so it's very exciting. And my my husband has three children as well. And so we always oh, joke we have this, okay. this Brady bunch, but it's uh-huh. something that our kids span lots of different worlds and ages uh-huh. and mm-hmm. and sort of opening myself to this idea that there's no one way it has to look. There's no one way a family has to be. And really feeling comfortable inside that wider world of complication and messiness as opposed to this very narrow version I felt like I was raised with, that it has to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainty is a very interesting topic because um, it's funny, my daughter and I were just having, she's 24, and uh, we're just discussing all these things, which is that's kind of what being an adult is about, is getting, un- getting used to the fact that nothing is certain. And even you can't make it certain, even if it looks certain, even if you, you know, lay down barriers or create um, legal bindings, nothing's certain. Right. That you never, we never know that we can't, we can make promises and hopes, and right. promises, but we just don't know. And that is, I think, is one of the painful parts of being an adult, this idea that we don't get to control everything. We don't control what happens to us. We don't control what, what we might want or change. We... We don't get to know for sure. I, th- I think being raised in, in, a, in the religious world I was raised in, it was so nice to feel that I knew the answers to the biggest mm. questions. Like, I knew the truth. Mm. And I, think I realized is no, that might be one person's truth. It might be mm. a piece of a truth. But the idea that anyone gets to claim that kind of truth is, I think, a childish notion. Mm. And how are your kids? How is your – so has that all worked out? So you're – you're seeing your kids and yeah, my kids. I have a, my kids are now almost twenty, almost oh. sixteen, and eleven, and so they okay. um, they're all you know on their own paths, doing their own things, and they mm-hmm. you know I think that obviously it comes with loss these kinds of changes, but I think one of the things that they learn is they learn there are lots of different ways to be. I hope mm-hmm. that my kids are not growing up with with a message that there's one way they have to be or there's one particular path they have to take in order for me to love them and accept them, that they don't mm-hmm. have to match who I am, that they get to become themselves. Mm-hmm. And are they sticking with the, the serious religious background or are they moving away from it or do you have a sense? Or? My, my oldest son is part of an Orthodox community and I okay. feel like you know my job as a mom is to help him do that. If he wants mm-hmm. to be that, that I can help him and facilitate that for him and that I would hate the idea that religious ideology creates boundaries between people, between family members. And so I just don't want to let that be something that is an impediment. And my other two children are less involved in it. And so I think, you know, this idea that we get to choose our kids' beliefs, maybe uh-huh. it's a fantasy. I think, mm. you know, I used to think as a young mother, having little kids run circles around me, that mm-hmm. the hardest part was holding on tight to them. But mm-hmm. the hardest part is letting go. The, mm-hmm. You know, it's letting them become themselves and letting them 
pursue different paths. And, you know, I feel like what I most hope for my kids is that they find things that they truly care about and truly believe that they don't have to pretend to be someone, that they get to live authentically more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the hard part. I think a lot of people, um, I talk to friends who were struggling with kids who have drug addiction and they're struggling a lot. I live in the suburbs with this sort of, I think there's a particular thing that goes on in the suburbs where people move out um, of the city, the mean bad city, so they can live these perfect lives in the suburbs. And of course, we know that tragedy and problems and issues happen no matter where you are. It doesn't happen just to people in the city. You know? Right, exactly. I grew up being told that if you're religious, you're protected, that bad things mm. can't happen if mm. you live in a religious world. You know, the outside world has these problems. And of course, there's no protection. It's the suburbs don't protect you. Religious right. world, but we know that our kids are part of the world just like we are. And they, you know, as much as we want to protect them from everything, we can't. And that, I mean, it's hard right. to, to know that, that we don't get to sort of always be there on them at every second to, to shape who they're going to be. So um, in closing for our listeners today, while we may have some people who are uh, in sort of the religious kind of situation that you were in, I love the extension of broadening it to certainty, which is certainly all of us are grasping for certainty. And as soon as you start to get older, um, that's even more scary because it gets less certain as you get older. Um, What are some sort of very concrete pointers you might give? It could be people who are in um, a very tight knit situation that they feel is not right for them and they are approaching that 40th birthday. Or it could be um, a religious issue or some people where you say that they realize that it's just not right for them anymore. Maybe it's a, a, a marriage that they feel they have to get out of, or, you know, it could be a sexual orientation that they've been hiding something like that. What kind of steps would you suggest um, that they actually undertake to get that reinvention process going. Right. I think that these these changes apply to so many different kinds of situations. Right. Anytime you feel that you don't match the world you're you in. You don't match, right. Yes. And I, I think one of the things I found was that doing something new, even when it was unrelated to sort of the larger issue, you know, I, I couldn't change everything at once, but I found that just learning a new skill or doing something different made me realize I could do something new. And you know, one example I'll give is I once was at a beach and they had people, and I was sort of admired in my, you know, nothing can change mode. Mm -hmm. And there was a beach and there were these people who had paddle boards at the ocean. Mm -hmm. And my immediate first thought was, oh, I can't possibly do that. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, but what if I could do that? What if, Mm -hmm. you know, I could. And Mm -hmm. so I did and I loved it. It's one of my, I'm going Mm -hmm. paddle boarding is one of my favorite things. And I realized that, yes, you know, I learned a very practical, tangible skill, mm-hmm. but that ability to do one new thing, I think, mm-hmm. lets us do other new things as well. Mm-hmm. When you make a change, even in an unrelated area, I think it does something to our minds. It, it unhooks us a little bit from that insistence that this is how it has to be. So I would say do anything different, even if it's one small thing. Mm-hmm. I think it reminds your mind Things mm-hmm. can can look different. I can change just so, even if one small change lets you make bigger changes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Now, did you actually take paddleboard lessons or you just grabbed a paddleboard and I, got out there? Or I, what grabbed, did you do? I grabbed a paddleboard. I went on it. Sure, this was going to be a disaster. But that feeling of like, let me just see if I can try. And to my great shock and surprise, I could stand up on it. And I fell over many times. And I realized <laughs> the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to fall into the water and realizing that's not so bad. And so mm-hmm. I would get on the paddleboard, I would fall off, I'd get back on, I'd stay up a little longer. Mm-hmm. And it was exhilarating. And I think mm-hmm. it became this metaphor for me in so many ways. This okay. idea of you can I could I could do something that I didn't know I could do. That mm-hmm. I we have such fixed notions, I think, and mm-hmm. what we're able to do and and mm-hmm. anything that changes it, even if it's something so small, mm-hmm. I think it it changes it in bigger ways as well for us. Okay. And is there any other tip or trick to get something going? I think the other tip I would say is not to be afraid to talk about it. I think that I for so long felt like if I ever voiced the fact that I was contemplating a change or that I was unhappy, I felt like that facade would crumple. Mm -hmm. And I realize now I think people are just waiting for one person to say it. They're waiting for someone to say, I'm not sure about this or I feel this way, or I have a doubt about this. And mm. I think it takes one person to say the uncomfortable thing for mm. so many other people too as well. And it, it eases that feeling of being all alone and wanting to change something. Hmm. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. Was, was there a lot of backlash though when you started? I mean, it, that, that can be very risky, right? For some people in some cases to even voice any kind of dissent, especially in a, a religious kind of thing, right? Right. I mean, of course, you take the risk. Anytime you say something honest, you take the risk. And so maybe it's, mm-hmm. it's knowing who you can take that risk with, it's seeking okay. out those people. I think it's also learning how we become those people for someone else. There's, mm-hmm. you know, whenever someone makes mm-hmm. an admission of something, there's mm-hmm. always like a little dance that goes on. One person takes one step and the next person takes another step. But, but looking for those people who can hold more complicated stories, because I, I think that they're out there. I think there's so many of us who both hold and have those kinds of stories about other people and ourselves. Wow. Tova, unbelievable. So the book everybody's going to want to pick up is The Book of Separation, which is a memoir by Tova Miravis. And Tova, amazing story. Congratulations. I love the fact that you're off and experimenting with the new family, which is just wonderful. And I think you've given everybody some really good starting points, like just do something new. Just do something to break yourself out of and actually start talking about it. I think we hide too much and we're not honest enough with each other because, you know, even just regular people are afraid to break the facade that everything isn't perfect. Right. It's it's held so strongly for all of us, that facade. Wonderful. Thank you, Tova. And uh, I so appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. So I want to thank you all for being here with us at Reinvent Yourself with Leslie Jane Seymour. That was such an interesting conversation and such, I mean, talk about brave. How do you get the gumption up to reinvent out of a world that you thought was the entire world? I think that's really amazing. 
And I think it tells us all, whatever it is that's standing in our way of reinvention, um, it's pretty clear. You just have to make your mind up and do it somehow. And I hope that you will find all of these reinventions inspiring and also will help you get going in the direction you have to go to. If you like Reinvent Yourself, I hope that you will give us some stars so that other people can find us. It's so important. And that you'll subscribe. And I hope also that you'll join us at CoveyClub.com and like our Facebook page. Come follow our Instagram and be part of our Covey Club world. Thank you so much. See you later.